Hello, welcome to the February 2024 edition of the Vera Magazine podcast. I'm Johnny Ensel, here to administer your monthly dose of travel trends, top telly and plenty more besides. On the menu this month, a feast of natural wonders in Turks and Caicos. We hear from a techno-artist tackling racial inequalities in the New York clubbing scene and take an in-depth look at the trend for immersive experiences. Oh, and listen out for a little bit of this. It looks like a gnocchi, but I, I can't really tell what the operative difference is between that and a gnocchi. But... <laughs> Try this one weird pasta. Priests hate it. <laughs> In this month of love, it's appropriate we start the podcast with Red Hot, the section where we discuss the events, trends and travel highlights we're most passionate about. And here to give us her picks is Verva editor Jessica Prupas. Hello, Jess. Hey. Uh, are you feeling loved up? Um, I'm feeling tired. <laughs> <laughs> Exha- exhausted by love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I would love to hear what you love. So please, <laughs> what are your uh, picks for this month? Let's start in London. Londoners are getting uh, not one, but two bubble-centric experiences. Mm. Uh, okay. What is a bubble-centric experience? Oh, I'm glad you asked. So, <laughs> strangely, there's two immersive experiences that have recently opened in London that both revolve around balloons slash bubbles. There is the Balloon Museum, which opened uh, in late December, That is uh, just what it sounds like. It's a museum that revolves around balloons and balloon-centric exhibitions. It's housed in a 78,000-square-foot space in the city. Their first exhibition is called Emotion Air, Art You Can Feel. And according to them, it explores the profound relationship between art and human emotion through the captivating medium of inflatable art. (laughs) (laughs) Through the captivating medium of balls. (laughs) Captivating. (laughs) Okay, so so it's it's a sort of artistic exploration of everything round. Yeah. The other balloon-centric experience that Londoners are getting is called Bubble Planet. Now, this has less of an artistic bent, you might say. This is just unabashedly a big space full of bubbles and balls. Mm. <laughs> this one is in Wembley. An area famous for its balls and, and stadium <laughs> where balls are kicked. <laughs> Oh, I was I was like, what are you getting at there? <laughs> yes. You never like, heard of little... the Wembley balls. <laughs> I was like, is that like a local delicacy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's Cockney rhyming slang for uh, something. <laughs> but yeah, so this is just a, a large kind of like warehouse-esque space with various rooms filled with balloons. There's like a big balloon bubble pit. There's also a kind of VR component. Uh, that fits in somehow here. I don't know. It's just like a mad, a mad world of bubbles, basically. I get it. I think so. I mean, yeah. um, this is somewhat part of a kind of regressive trend mm. where overheated urbanites have have sought out experiences that somewhat recreate their childhoods. Yes, we love being infantilized. What is the fact that both of these? bubble slash balloon centric experiences opening in the last few months like what does that indicate in terms of where so-called immersive experiences are at in london at this point are we just like filling big rooms with literally anything (laughs) and being like this is an immersive experience (laughs) yeah i mean some of these experiences do take the idea of immersion quite literally don't they 
I mean, this one's like, go into a, a room full of balls and get in the balls, get under the balls. Yeah. I suppose the, the whole idea of an immersive experience is it makes you forget everything else that's going on outside mm. whatever bubble, figuratively or, or literally, that you're in. So, yeah, cheers to that. See you later, world. I'm going <laughs> to be immersed. Okay, well, are you, where are we heading next? Are we heading outside the bubble or where are we going? We're heading to a different kind of bubble entirely. Mm-hmm. Beverly Hills, oh, Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and what's happening there? There's a new restaurant called Funke, named after Chef Evan Funke. And apparently his last name is literally Funky. 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 Funke, <laughs> Funke. How do you spell yeah. that? F-U-N-K-E. Oh, so it's like Tobias Funke from uh, Arrested Development, but not pronounced that way. Well, exactly. Yeah. So why is why is Evan Funke so funky? <laughs> He's a chef who cooks Italian food. Yeah. Uh, that's a specialty. He looks after Mother Wolf and Felix, both in LA. These are really well-known, really hyped restaurants in the city. Mother Wolf is known especially for their Roman-style pastas and pizzas but especially pastas um and this is his latest project and this is where he's like really leaning into pasta and pasta making as an art form so it's very beautiful it's like an art deco style space there's like a pink bar on the roof which is very beverly hills but there's also a so-called pasta lab which is basically just like a pasta counter where you can see chefs making the pastas that Funky is so known for. But he's kind of billing this as a central part of the experience of going to Funky. He says he wants to kind of like break down the barrier between diner and chef and really nail into the the pasta making process. Mm, I'm always trying to break down the barriers between diners and chefs. Of course. You know, I go into a restaurant. Why wouldn't you? I say, get out of the kitchen. Go sit down. I'm cooking. <laughs> And they don't they don't understand what's happening. So I feel like I would do I would do well in this situation. <laughs> All right, so so he he's a he's a sort of pasta wizard, uh, pasta mm. mad scientist, and he makes pastas that challenge pure logic. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what 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 are we talking about here? Funny you should say that. Yeah. So he's really interested in obscure pasta shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like he's a bit of a pasta historian. Mm, yeah. That's the thing. You know, you've got your parpadellis, you've got your tagliatelles, but you've also got less normy pastas like a strangola preti, which apparently means priest strangler. Oh, yeah. Strangola preti. <laughs> strangola preti. Yeah. Uh, very Italian. What is a strangola preti? It looks like a gnocchi, but I, I can't really tell what the operative difference is between <laughs> that and a gnocchi. But... Try this one weird pasta. Priest hate it. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How much do you think the shape of food influences the flavor? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose an Italian would say very much so because that is the vehicle for the sauce. Mm. And so they interact differently with different sauces and different accoutrements. Mm. So there's obviously a real philosophy behind this. But me as a kind of Canadian interloper, I, I do not know. <laughs> yeah. But no penne on the menu. No penne on the menu. Uh, he's very actually vocally anti-penne. Is he? Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad somebody is. I mean... <laughs> Someone's had to stand up Those too. tubes have been getting away with it for far too long. <laughs> stand up to big penne yeah, once and for all. Exactly. Uh, all right then. So Funky. Funky's new restaurant. Um, go and see the 
pasta man in his pasta lab and <laughs> um, have your whole concept of the universe challenged. Okay, what else have you got for us, Jess? Franchise fatigue. Mm, yeah, I feel a bit of this. Do you? We're talking about movies here, movie franchises. We're talking movies and we're talking about how last year the three top-selling movies at the box office were, for the first time since 2001, which is a bit crazy, all original stories rather than... Marvel movies or... Yeah, yeah, Marvel movies or entries into a franchise or sequels or whatever. So yeah. those three movies, can you have a guess? Uh, Barbie. Yep. Um, Oppenheimer, I'm guessing. That's right. Uh, I can't think of the third. Super Mario Brothers, weirdly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So those were the three top-selling films. And, you know, whereas things like Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and the Marvels both mm. flopped. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think this is a good thing, personally. What's the theory behind this, then? Well... Marvel, for example, they've put out 125 hours worth of film and television. In that year, in 2023. Yeah. And at this point, like, if that's our yearly output, it's really hard as an outsider to, like, if you want to get into it, it's like, yeah. there's so much to catch up on, so much lore. And it's just really alienating at this point. And then also, it's just, I guess, if you're just given a whole lot of one thing, it's just human nature to be like, ah, I don't want that anymore. Okay, so we've reached our threshold for cinematic universe type content and we want fresh ideas. Yeah, I mean, we're in for a treat this year. Jordan Peele of Nope fame and Bong Joon-ho of Parasite fame both have new movies coming out, both original stories. I will say that obviously calling Barbie and Super Mario Brothers original stories is like really stretching the limits of... Yeah, but it, they're, they're not, you know, it's not like Barbie 5, the Barbie-ning, you know. No, exactly. Yeah. So things are looking up in Hollywood and we can just expect some good new fresh stories. Oh, thank heavens. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay, thank you, Jess. And what's your final pick for this month? We're still in Hollywood. This is a very Hollywood-centric segment, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah. This year is the 60th anniversary of the Hollywood Studio Tour. Mm. So you know about this. This is like a really kind of like essential stop on any LA vacation. To go to Universal Studios. Yeah, Universal Studios, they were the OG. They started the concept of a studio tour. They originated it in 1964. They did it to compete with Disneyland at the time. And it was so successful that Warner Brothers, just across the road, copied them. And so the Warner Brothers Studio Tour of Hollywood that is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Paramount's got one, Sony Culver City's got one, and at this point they all have something slightly different to offer. So the Warner Brothers one, for example, that's the one where you can go on all of the like really famous sets like Friends and Gilmore Girls and Harry Potter. Paramount, it's got a bit of a historic bent. You can see like a historic lot from 1926, and then apparently everyone on the tour gets a little job and you have to act out filming a scene on a movie set yeah yeah so, um, you're, so it's you're in the film it is an immersive experience and, there it is and again. if you're good enough you get to star <laughs> in a hit movie exactly <laughs> that's how that works mm -hmm. sony culver city it's got a bit of a, like a music theme um and you can go to the music bays where they recorded all the very famous scores of sony films um and you can sit on the couch where john williams and spielberg took naps when mm. they were scoring their various films 
And then also in New York, NBC Studios, they've just relaunched their famous tour of 30 Rockefeller Center. And that's where you can see SNL and The Tonight Show and Late Night. You can see all of those sets. So it's going strong. The industry as a whole is is still going strong. Yeah, in itself, a sort of form of immersive experience. Yeah, sure. What is an immersive experience? What isn't at this point? The lines are blurring between content and reality. Is this an immersive experience? I don't know. Is this podcast? Well, just now, this podcast. Am I? Is this? Is everything that's <laughs> happening an immersive experience? Are we? Are we in a, a giant simulation, which is also an immersive experience? Yeah, it's the new the new Matrix. Is is this an immersive experience? <laughs> okay, well, I'm. I, if so, you know, I'm. I'm kind of happy. It's got um, the requisite number of balls for me to be having a good time. <laughs> yeah, you love balls. I love balls, and on that note, <laughs> thank you, Jess, for your picks. Happy Valentine's. Happy Valentine's Day. Bye bye. Bye. And now it's Location Scout, where every month we check in with a local expert to find out just what is so special about a place they know well. And for February, we're heading to Turks and Caicos to find out about the island's natural wonders and famous biodiversity from journalist Kristen Braswell. So let's see if we can get Kristen on the phone right now. Hi, Johnny. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to hear about Turks and Caicos uh, and, and what makes those islands so special. Could you just give us a bit of an overview of, you know, where they are and, and what they're about? Absolutely. Uh, the Turks and Caicos is southeast of the Bahamas, and it consists of 40 main islands and Cays, nine of which are inhabited. Providencialis is the most populated and popular of the islands. And it also, I would say, has the most concentration of hotels, attractions, and the most frequented beaches, including the very, very popular Grace Bay Beach. I think what sets Turks and Caicos apart from other islands is its beaches. Mm. I often tell people the water clarity and color sort of rival that of Bora Bora and the Maldives. You're also going to find a great number of luxury accommodations to choose from that are just steps away from those pristine waters. And there's ample water sports and dining as well. So it's beautiful, beautiful place. Absolutely. I mean, the water clarity is like, if you think about picking up a bottle of gin, mm. that sort of sparkling turquoise color, that's what the water looks like there. It's incredible. I often do think about picking up a bottle of gin. So <laughs> I, I as can. well. It's too early, but <laughs> I, I will be having a gin tonic later for sure. <laughs> so the islands are also known for being a particularly kind of great spot for wildlife, you know, a place where nature is well preserved. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Can you talk a bit about that and why is that? Absolutely. I think oftentimes people think of the Turks and Caicos Islands as a place primarily for luxury hotels and beautiful beaches. And while both of those things do exist, the natural wonders there is, are plentiful. Firstly, you're going to find world-class reefs, mm. pristine caves, um, abundant wildlife all around each of the islands. One of my favorite places and it's also one of the most photographed places is Dragon Cay on Middle Caicos. It's a naturally preserved beachfront that's shaped like a dragon. And there's a sandbar that connects the Cay to the mainland where during low tide, you can watch crashing waves and blowholes and it's just incredible. Um, to your question as well about like the natural landscape there, the island was once a major salt exporter. Right. So on islands like Grand Turk and South Caicos, you're going to find what's called salinas. And those are man-made shallow depressions 
that were once filled with salt water. So those are long gone. They're dried up, but it's pretty incredible to go and see them. They have this striking pink color, particularly by the lakes they sit by. And there's flamingos that graze their way across the pinkish waters. And it's, it's just beautiful to see. For whale watchers, there's a migration typically from January through April. And Salt Cay is a great place to be to see the whale watching. And then lastly, sort of in terms of just mammals and natural things there, I would say there's an endemic iguana. It's called the rock iguana. It's famous all around the island and it calls Little Water Cay um, its home. There are about 50,000 of the endangered species left on the island and they can get up to 32 inches in length. So those are just a few things that you can see there. I also, sorry, will say that on South Caicos, there are more donkeys than residents than human beings. So that's also something that's kind of interesting if you go there. Well, I like donkeys and I like big rare iguanas. Yes, so. well, you will see both of those definitely all around. <laughs> it's, really, it's really ticking my boxes. Yeah, yeah. And um, coral reefs are a big contributor to the, the diversity of wildlife as well. Are they around the islands? Absolutely. So Turks and Caicos is actually home to one of the largest barrier reef systems in the world. In Providencialis in particular, they have a 340-mile barrier reef system. And the most popular place that people go to snorkel and dive is called Bite Reed. They also call it Coral Gardens because of the abundance of, uh, of coral reefs there. And then while snorkeling in particular there, there are a number of things that you'll spot in the water. It's just teeming with wildlife that includes hawksbill turtles, Southern brown stingrays, parrotfish, angelfish, and even sometimes uh, nurse sharks can be seen there. Mm, okay. Good sharks, not bad sharks. No, the friendly ones, yes. I mean, don't <laughs> hold me to that, but that's all, I, <laughs> that's all I've encountered. Um, also, I will say for scuba divers, in particular, Grand Turk, which is the capital of the Turks and Caicos Islands, they are considered to have some of the best diving in the world um, because there's excellent dive masters that live there and tour operators. And if you do do diving, what you're going to see there are migratory humpback whales, more coral reefs, and then they even have some shipwrecks. So it's a pretty cool place to go if you're a diver. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, all, all of this sounds very, very special and sounds like it kind of really must be protected. Do you feel like... There are efforts to preserve all of this and, and, you know, tourism to the island is kind of responsible in that way. I do. A lot of plastic, for example, has been banned across the island, plastic use. Mm. There are places like Princess Alexandria National Park, which is their largest protected park where there are, you know, just things in place. There are only a number of tour operators that can go out via boat. There are places where literally no boats can go out at all. In Sapodilla Bay, for example, in Providencialis. And then in Mujin Harbor, there are a number of places as well that are protected. And lastly, I'll say in Middle Caicos, they have a limestone cave network. And you can only visit those caves with the tour guide because they are, you know, just trying to be very careful about protecting those natural landscapes. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds lovely. And uh, what about food and drink and kind of going out? Beyond the wildlife, what should you do? Yes, beyond the wildlife, there are ample opportunities to eat in Turks, particularly in lobster season. Which is when? Lobster season typically runs um, from August to March. And so all around the island, particularly during their very famous Thursday fish fry, which takes place in like this outdoor pavilion with musicians, 
you'll be able to get lobster prepared in a number of ways. Another very, very popular crustacean on the island is conch. My favorite place to go to have it is a place called Boogaloo's. It's right by the ocean, and they even have some tables that are immersed in the water. So you can have your feet in the water while you're eating conch, grilled, pan-fried, sautéed, in a sandwich, ceviche-style. I'm also a huge Prince fan, <laughs> so I was really excited to learn. Prince, the recording artist? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And he has a Turks and Caicos connection, does he? He does. So he actually had a vacation home there that is now available for rent. Um, it's called Amara Estate. And there's 17 bedrooms. There, It has its own private beach. And guests can also hire one of the island's most popular chefs. His name is Adrian Forte. I've had his food before. It's incredible. He'll come in and create a daily menu. It's in the residential area um, of Turtle Tail. That's also very quiet. Um, and then if you're looking for a private island experience, it doesn't get much better than Ambergris Cay. That's located on the southeastern edge of the Caicos Islands. And it's just 1,100 acres of just untouched sand-swept dunes and unspoiled beach. And the accommodation options are villas or beachfront suites. And they also have an all-inclusive plan that includes meals and a number of water sports and activities like pickleball. So you really never need to leave. So that would be another a great option for someone that is perhaps looking for something a bit out of the bustle of Providencialis. So you can not only live like a prince, you can live like prince. Exactly. You know, at Amara, they, the driveway there is even painted in purple. Of course it is. I was going to ask if it was yes. purple. Of course it's purple. <laughs> yes, it is. A, it's quite a sight. Yeah. All right. So you can go and experience some incredible wildlife and then cozy up in prince's purple bed sheets <laughs> and then you know with a rum cocktail it, it sounds like a perfect day to me yeah absolutely i can imagine prince enjoying looking at some rare iguanas it's a nice it's absolutely. a nice thought it is it is <laughs> well um Kristen, thank you so much for guiding us around what sounds like a beautiful place and uh, yeah an incredibly kind of biodiverse place as well so thank you and um, enjoy the rest of your day Thank you. It's Black History Month in North America, a time for people of all backgrounds to reflect, listen, learn, and stand up against racial inequalities. This includes the denizens of New York's clubbing scene, where some artists are still denied the platforms and the pay grades of their white counterparts. Someone who's experienced this disparity firsthand is Dion McKenzie, aka Tigerpaw a Brooklyn-based techno DJ on a mission to make the city's dance floors more inclusive for ravers and artists alike. Here's Tigerpaw to tell us more. Hi, I'm Tigerpaw and I'm an artist, DJ, producer, and I reside in New York, Brooklyn. My personal experiences as how I came up as a DJ is I started my own queer center for uh, uh, parties, events for Black Caribbeans, Black queer and trans non-binary individuals. That's, I started that in like 2015 and that just solely in terms of like wanting to highlight 
artists and the music that I think deserve to be heard and, and experienced. And that path kind of like really led me here to, to be able to advocate and continue to do work of just expansion and correcting the aspects of erasure that, that takes place sometimes with Black artists. When it comes to music in, or Black music, particularly in New York City, there is, yeah, different genres that are at the, the fabric of the city or the makeup, you know, I mean, the ones that I've experienced that have a huge impact within the queer community is uh, ballroom. And that's just like an art form of where voguing is implemented. It's like a, a style that, you know, existed in the 80s with ballroom houses and the events that they would throw in competition and just, you know, in community with one another. So there's also club music that is uh, like, really deep within the counterculture and underground and New Jersey is just over you know the Hudson so there's like Jersey Club that is also a part of that connection. In terms of like originators I would say for like Jersey Club I know like uh, DJ Slink, there's Unique, there's a few people a part of the community who have come up from that scene and within ballroom, Kevin Aviance as a real pioneer of like the sound. And there's DJ Mike Q, there's Byrell the Great. There is this uh, a sound that is bass or heavy sub kick oriented within the structure of a four on the floor but with uh, like a faster BPM. So while ballroom is a little bit more adjacent to house, as I would say, Jersey would be a little bit more adjacent to techno in terms of his energy. Yeah, there's techno has a rich history in New York as well and house, but like, yeah, those sounds that I feel for Jersey club and ballroom, you know, they're a continuation and a sort of evolution of, of each, like in terms of a, a contemporary sense. I have a sort of like an unconventional way of how I found my way to techno. It's not necessarily through what I was hearing within New York because I didn't really hear techno that as much within the 2010s, but it's kind of like on my own discoveries of just YouTubing and watching documentaries and just discovering underground resistance. I would say that in New York has had kind of had a bit of uh, awakening in terms of techno in the past three, four years, maybe it's been sort of like the focus within clubs playing like, you know, because black artists have, our DJs have sort of been reclaiming our space within um, techno, essentially. I would say that the festival that has primarily been support and, and kind of like the resurgence is coming from Dweller. Uh, it's a credible festival run by Frankie Hutchison and it is a black electronic music festival highlighting all of the incredible black 
DJs and artists within the city. And also there's bookings now happening where international artists will come and play as well, just to amplify and center Black artists that often get overlooked within electronic music, particularly within the techno industry. So in terms of me playing Dweller, I've only played once, but Dweller is a couple years in now as a, a festival. It's just been growing in scope, and that's a beautiful thing, I think. That is kind of like the only festival that exists right now in that format, in just terms of historically what techno represents to us as black people is it is the sound of resistance so i think naturally in its nature techno is a political genre in terms of like how it came about so i think it just naturally would be in that lane of creating awareness around political things you know i think in terms of what can be done Nothing is as straightforward, unfortunately, due to the practice of capitalism and, you know, the the motivations that, you know, clubs will have to book artists. But I do believe that opportunities should just be more accessible to certain artists and definitely in terms of the pay gap and payment disparities. I think one of the biggest things that could happen potentially is for more opportunities for like grant support and just more funding opportunities for sound centered work. But sometimes it's hard to gauge a direction of things, you know, it's such a tight structure and with management companies and agencies, booking agencies and all of the, the tier that also create a bit of the hierarchy and the inaccessibility of who they represent versus who they don't represent. A lot of those issues are, you know, at play. So I think that I'm not a hundred percent optimistic about any change happening soon. I think that we had like a wave of optimism, like post pandemic and, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and then all of that performativity just ended really abruptly so it doesn't really leave a lot of optimism for me personally that that I can see any change but I think there are aspects that are shifting and I often think about my journey and how difficult it it has been and it it continues to be in certain aspects but like it's it's slightly shifting towards a, a better pathway just because of the representation that I have now. And I know that's very much an obstacle for my peers that don't have the right representation. Or I think that the optimistic and the beautiful thing is that a lot of artists have the control in a sense where if they make music, you know, they can get direct support for buying their music and from Bandcamp and, and those platforms that help in that sense. But yeah, there's a lot of things that are exploitative about the music industry. So it can be quite a difficult thing to navigate. You can follow Tigerpaw on Instagram, SoundCloud and Bandcamp. Just search for Tiger Paw. That's T Y G A Paw. 
It's time to look at what's on Vera this February in terms of the top TV and film picks, things you should be watching right away. And to tell us, we have our guest critic, Al Horner. Hello, Al. Hey, Johnny. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling really good. I'm ready for your uh, momentous choices. Oh, well, that's just as well, because we've got quite a lot to talk about. Uh, the first film I want to recommend this month is not a film that uh, anyone will be uh, new to. It was one of the biggest movies of last year. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Have you seen Oppenheimer, Johnny? You know what? I haven't seen Oppenheimer. And it's one of those which I've almost been saving for a plane journey. Is that a good idea? Um, Christopher Nolan would say no because, you know, he shot this on giant IMAX and is one of those directors who would, I think, prefer to, to be kind of basking in the full glory of his majestic picture and all its scale and all that kind of thing. However, I am a big believer in the idea that... Um, watching a movie on a plane, a movie that's full of spectacle, you know, it's putting it to the test when you watch it on the small screen as well. And um, I have watched this film on a small screen and I can attest that it still stands up even if you're not seeing nuclear explosions go off like, you know, at 80 foot on a massive, mm. huge screen. So uh, yeah, it, it also, the length of it lends itself pretty well to a flight as well. This is, this is a bit of a long one. So Oppenheimer, you know, just to give the kind of brief overview, he he's the guy who invented the atomic bomb. And, he is indeed. Uh, he was a bit he was a bit bummed about it. <laughs> is that is that you, a fair summary? You should really write the descriptions for these movies <laughs> in like a professional way. Um, yeah, he was a bit bummed about it. So Killian uh, Murphy of Peaky Blinders and Twenty Eight Days Later fame, he plays Oppenheimer. And yeah, the film very much tracks the reasons for the creation of the atomic bomb and then the immense sense of guilt afterwards as this character has to reckon with what he's unleashed upon the world and perhaps the way that it's condemned the world. So um, yeah, it, it's a film that kind of uh, Nolan was working on for a long while. Of course, a lot of people will know Christopher Nolan, I think primarily through his Batman movies. That was a lot of like uh, people's introduction to his work um he's obviously made interstellar inception great kind of sci-fi spectacles like that this is definitely his most somber work it's definitely his most grounded but it is absolutely incredible you can't help but sort of get just so pulled in by this character and by i guess the stakes of this story mm. it's literally like you know the fate of the world is on the line in this movie and uh in, in a much more real way than we're used to seeing in films Mm, okay, so quite affecting. All right, well, um, I will not be put off watching that on the small screen. I'll um, dive right in. Please do, yeah. It's it's very, very, very good, if you hadn't already picked up from my glowing, mm. glowing review. <laughs> uh, okay, what else in film terms, please, Al? So from the massive scale of Oppenheimer to a much smaller affair, there's a film called Reality that's hit the service this month, and... I've been raving about this film to anyone who will listen. It came out last year and it has the distinction of being created in this quite interesting way. So it's essentially the story of this whistleblower, Sydney Sweeney of Euphoria fame. Um, she plays a character with the best name ever, Reality Winner. That's her, this is mm. a real person with that name. Love that. But yeah, Reality Winner was someone who essentially leaked some some evidence of Russian interference in the 2016 election and um, faced criminal consequences for it. 
The film is kind of set in one location. It's set as the kind of FBI descend upon her house and they interview her. But all the dialogue is taken from her actual conversations with the FBI agents. It's a literal transcript of it. But the the filmmaker, Tina Satter, like she manages to bring it to life in these amazingly engrossing ways. And um, you kind of really feel the push and pull of this character who in real life, many people think is a patriot many people think has committed an act of treason. She's a really divisive figure in the US. So yeah, the the kind of treatment is really sensitive, it's really gripping, and it's one of those films that makes so much out of so little in terms of location and in terms of characters. There aren't many actors in this film, but you will be engrossed from start to finish. Mm, Okay, I really like movies like that, that tap into that sort of... um secretive world of kind of american fbi secret service type operations yeah you can't beat them yeah absolutely okay yeah no that sounds engrossing what else please al so my third pick this month is priscilla and this is the new film from uh, sophia coppola who is a filmmaker i adore her big introduction to the world was 20 years ago with lost in translation a movie that kind of lives on in in notoriety This is the story of Priscilla Presley, who was married, of course, to Elvis. We had a big Elvis biopic last year in the form of um, Baz Luhrmann's film. But this is Mm. a very different affair, a very different perspective. And it asks a lot of questions about the ethics of of Elvis and the kind Mm. of morality around their marriage, as well as being this kind of just really beautiful character study, if you like. So yeah, if you're interested in Elvis and you're willing mm. to go down this uh, this pathway where questions are asked about like the man behind the music and, and some of the sort of darker sides of his personality, then this is a beautiful watch. It's an engrossing watch. It's Sofia Coppola, so you know you're going to get loads of lovely kind of pastel colours and all that kind of thing. Mm. And um, yeah, again, I just can't rave enough about this film. I think it's going to be in contention as we kind of go further into award season. So the story is examining the, the kind of age disparity between them and the kind of ethics of that. Is that part of it? That's definitely part of it, but it's not kind of didactic in, in being about that. It's mm. it's very much like the, the kind of perspective of Priscilla as this, this young woman who gets kind of caught in the comet tail of this incredible superstar, unlike anything the world had seen before. Mm. Women like Priscilla are so often put into the shadows by the kind of people who they're attached to but um this film kind of tells her story in a way that kind of only Sofia Coppola can there's there's no one over the last two decades who has told as many stories about despondent women lonely women she she kind of has that area very much locked down between films like uh, lost in translation and yeah virgin suicides marie antoinette all those different films and, and yeah like it, it all comes together in this like really beautiful portrayal that um is nuanced and kind of just gripping from start to finish mm. great costumes too absolutely well three really interesting film picks there what about TV? Are you taking it more upbeat? Yeah, sure. <laughs> that, yeah, that was quite a downbeat selection, I'm aware. But there's nothing to cheer you up quite like polar bears, seal pups, things like that, right, Johnny? I'm talking, of course, about Planet Earth 3. Have you, have you seen this? Uh, I haven't, but I love that planet. Uh, <laughs> Big fan. It's one of my favourites of the ones that we know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's fair. So we all know about David Attenborough and his incredible legacy as a broadcaster, everything he's done for the environmental movement and in sharpening kind of our understanding of the natural world. Planet Earth 3 is, well, I mean, it's no great surprise to say it looks amazing. It tells incredibly inspiring stories that kind of put you in touch with the natural world around us. The importance of the show, I suppose, is is sharpened by the kind of threats against the natural world. So, you know, there's kind of an increased urgency to this latest installment. But yeah, you can stick this on, you can gaze at these incredible animals photographed so beautifully, and you can come out of it with a new appreciation for the planet and the many wonders within. Mm. Good for a sense of perspective. I think so, yeah. And yeah, seal pups. I'm being serious, there is an incredible scene in this series where seal pups are are just playing and being cute and uh, it's the antidote to anything. Any kind of grim, gloomy weather, stick on some seal pups, have David Attenborough, you know, narrating it. You you can't go wrong, Johnny. Not just upbeat, but pup beat. Here he is. This is why they pay him the big bucks. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this, towards the end of the podcast, I usually just revert to cheap puns, (laughs) just to keep things ticking over. I like Um, that. (laughs) Okay, Al, it sounds really good. Another TV pick, please. Okay, I've been fully down the rabbit hole with this TV show called The Lazarus Project, which, again, is quite hard to describe without sort of ending up in knots because it's a very complex show, but it's probably one of the better British shows that I've seen in a long while. It's um, kind of a time travel thriller and like the, the action scenes, honestly, they kind of hold their own with any hollywood franchise despite being made on like a fraction of the budget and um it's really quite something it is vaguely about the attempt to undo this kind of huge apocalyptic event by going back in time and that's all i'll say to preserve some of the mystery about it what you might want to know about it is it currently spans two seasons and um yeah time loop thrillers can be sometimes a little bit demanding if your attention and your thought processes Like if you're trying to like just wind down after a hard day at work or after a long flight or on a long flight, sometimes you might be sort of tempted to think this is going to be too much. But there is just something so popcorn-y and exciting and yes, challenging, but also rewarding about The Lazarus Project that, um, yeah, I had a great time with it. I think you will too. Mm. Okay, so it's a timey-wimey thriller. Uh, Who's in it? So Papa Asedu is in it, who is a British actor who you may have seen turning up in quite a few things. He's worked quite a lot with Michaela Cole, who's also amazing. Yeah, he's fantastic in this. And as I say, you, you may recognize him from Gangs of London or Black Mirror. He turns up in a lot of things. And when he does, you're usually in for a good time. I May Destroy You that he made with um, Michaela Cole. Fantastic. I also loved, yeah, his episode of Black Mirror. So there's a lot to love in his kind of blooming filmography. I think he's a bit of a star and I'm excited to see where he goes from this. Fabulous. Okay. Your final TV pick, please, Al. My final TV pick is Payback, which... Oh, uh, payback. What a, what a good name for a show. That's all you need, isn't it? Payback. Two syllables. Bam. Mm. Payback is a fantastic kind of addition to jed mercurio's sort of stable of shows i don't know if you're familiar with jed yeah obviously um the thin i want to say the thin blue line but that's the uh, (laughs) comedy starring rowan atkinson (laughs) i mean that's great too yeah yeah line Um, of duty line of duty that's the one i would like to see his remake of that though um (laughs) 
Yeah, this is fantastic. He didn't write it, I believe, but it comes from his sort of stable of shows that he's building. It's very much in line with his brand, though. It's like this strange kind of gangland thriller in which, like, there has been, like, financial misgivings, put it that way. Um, There is a main character who has been laundering the money of this crime boss and now tens of millions of pounds have gone missing and obviously in gangland that comes with repercussions they take their accounting very seriously yes they do indeed uh those gangsters they take it very diligently it's also worth mentioning this is not the kind of london-based gang drama you might be expecting it's set in edinburgh instead which uh really you know, just offers a different flavor and um yeah the characters here are portrayed so brilliantly there's some great performances on show and um yeah in much in the way of line of duty despite this being a, a very different show you'll be gripped you'll want to know what the next episode is you'll be just trying to guess and get ahead of, of what's happening and typically you won't be able to because this is a twisty twisty thriller that keeps you on your toes Mm. I don't think I've ever heard of a crime drama set in Edinburgh. I lived for a bit in, in Edinburgh, and it's not the most crime dramery city. There are some places that lend itself to it, but you know, it's hard to maintain a sense of menace when characters are kind of, you know, walking past Greyfriars Bobby, and there are characters in the background sort of enjoying a delicious uh, what afternoon is it? tea or something. <laughs> <laughs> Greyfriars Bobby, for people who don't know, is a statue of a small dog that famously stayed by the um, the grave of its owner for years and years. I think that's why Greyfriars Bobby is famous. That's yeah. correct. He's one of the best animals never to have appeared in a David Attenborough documentary. <laughs> I'm surprised nobody's made Greyfriars Bobby the movie yet. Starring Vin Diesel? Who could we put in this role? <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably Vin Diesel or Daniel Day-Lewis, I think, uh, to play Bobby. Yeah, I think, I think that's what Daniel Day-Lewis has been waiting for. okay well i'll add that to the list of brilliant concepts we come up with as part of this podcast why isn't hollywood calling al what are we doing wrong i can only assume they don't have our numbers i guess that's it they probably just lost them uh thank you al for those great picks as ever thank you johnny it's been a blast as ever And that's all for this month. I'm off to get balls deep in an immersive experience of some sort. The Viru Magazine podcast is made by Ink Studio for Virgin Atlantic and is produced by David Clack at Perfect Loop Productions. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next month. 